Julian Zelizer, political historian at Princeton University and a New America Foundation fellow, a friend of the program, a friend of mine, always good to have him here. He has published over 500 op-eds, including his weekly column on CNN.com. He is the co-host of the podcast Politics and Polls and has received fellowships from the Brookings Institution, the Guggenheim Foundation, and the Russell Sage Foundation. His book is the fierce, or latest book, he's written others, The Fierce Urgency of Now, Linda Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. More than a pleasure to have Julian back on the program, seeing him more and more on TV, on CNN. Way to go, buddy. Uh, glad to have Thanks. you with us. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for being with us. Um, you've written a number of pieces for CNN, one of which uh, entitled, Should Democrats Cooperate with uh, Trump? Um, you know, I as a Democrat feel that, you know, to a certain degree, but then, you know, there is the bitterness, and then, of course, there is the responsibility to the constituents that the Democrats have. I mean, people might say, well, Trump won the election. Yes, but we do know he didn't win the popular vote, so there are a heck of a lot of people out there getting closer and closer to 3 million, plus, uh, on top of uh, the ones uh, that voted uh, for Hillary, adding 3 million to that, um, that say, you know what, we don't really want you Democrats to cooperate with Trump. Um, So we're going to go through, uh, you know, uh, points in your article, but off the bat, should Democrats cooperate with President-elect Trump? I don't think they should be running to do that. I think he ran a campaign which in many ways was antithetical to a lot of what the party stands for in terms of its policy, in terms of the rhetoric that he used. The Democrats don't need to feel some obligation uh, to now normalize this White House and decide that they are going to cooperate. And I do think, given the cabinet he's putting together, there are going to be many, many fundamental differences on policy. And one of the things Democrats can learn from Republicans is that they don't need to concede. Uh, Republicans didn't, and they ended up eight years later in, in pretty strong shape. So there's many reasons to counsel, I think, Democrats that they can stand firm against the administration. It would be beneficial to do so. When we look at the um, fight that has broken out among congressional Democrats that you write about and Mm -hmm. and how they are to respond to President-elect Donald Trump, um, we are going forward. He is going to be our president. The election uh, is uh, behind us. Um, you write that there are two contradictory arguments about what the strategy should be in the coming months. Um, because, uh, you know, in, 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 in this, and I want you to talk about these um, two contradictory arguments and what the strategy should be, but also do you think going forward that will further unite or further fragment uh, the party, the Democratic Party? I think sometimes opposition is a way to unite the party. Uh, I think if the Democrats move too fast to cooperate with the administration and focus on finding um, points of commonality, which might sound good and it might be uh, what some members of the party think is best, it can actually bring out a lot of the tensions that exist. There are tensions in the party. Uh, and I don't think working with the Republican administration or Republican Congress will make those better. Sometimes opposition and focusing on who your opponent is is a way in which parties start to find some coherence and actually start to define what they're about by explaining what they're against. So uh, I think it's, it's more than possible to stand firm against the administration on many issues and come out in better health. That's what happened to the GOP. Yeah, very true. Um... Senator Bernie Sanders um, had a populist campaign that rocked uh, the Democratic Party. Um, He indicated he would work with Trump if the president-elect was serious about pursuing policies that take on corporate power and benefit working Americans. So far, we're not seeing evidence of that, are we? 
Right, and that's the big danger, and I think that's what many liberals are worried about. Obviously, uh, President-elect Trump has talked about helping working-class Americans and uh, that saving jobs at Carrier was a, a, a way in which he has argued he is following through on those promises. Uh, but I think many liberals, even many moderate Democrats and many Republicans are leery that he's very serious about this. He's appointing a team of domestic policy people who are anything but progressive uh, in dealing with these kinds of social questions. And he's bringing in people from Wall Street who their business record is the opposite of what Bernie Sanders talked about. So uh, the danger of helping uh, the president-elect to achieve some success is that you'll actually give him a path toward eight years, toward two terms. You'll empower the Republican Congress, and in the end, their policies will go against everything that the Sanders campaign stood for. Uh, when we look at the Sanders campaign and we look at the Democratic Party, that also st- seems to be a, a fragmentation. Uh, you know, are you, you know, do do you want Keith Ellison? Do you want the party to move um, further left? And if the party does, in fact, move further left, following that revolution, if you will, that Senator Bernie Sanders started, isn't it going to be much more difficult for Democrats to work with Trump because there's no way to meet in the middle if the Dems are going further left? And it would appear that Trump is going uh, further right, even to the right of some of the Republicans. Well, I think the Democrats can go further economic. I think there's no need to abandon all the issues that Democrats have fought for. There's no need to move away from supporting civil rights and voting rights, for example, or supporting feminism and gender equity. But they clearly could do a lot more to reverse some of what Bill Clinton had done in the 90s and move away from core economic concerns that had animated the party since the New Deal. You can do that without going totally left, dealing with jobs and dealing with job growth is not necessarily a left-right issue. That's what Trump's campaign proved. Uh, Democrats can just do it with policies to back it up. And I think that's clearly a way in which if you had done that and combined the rest of the Clinton campaign with that, uh, you might have had a Clinton electoral college victory, not just a popular victory. And when we look at the party as the, you know, both parties, uh, there are some areas Chuck Schumer had talked about uh, uh, announcing a series of initiatives, infrastructure, mandatory paid maternity leave. These are areas where you could find bipartisan support, right? Sure. Uh, And in the states, we've seen issues like the minimum wage often has a lot of support in conservative areas. So there are economic policies where you at the same time that unite your own party and move them toward issues that many Democrats care about, you can actually win some Republican support, especially after the Trump campaign. So economics and being more liberal on economics can actually be a winning Democratic issue. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with our guest, Julian Zelizer, author of The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. Julian can be followed on Twitter at Julian Zelizer, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R, the website, JulianZelizer.com, and you can also go to CNN.com to check out one of his many great pieces. He has over 500 op-eds, and he has a weekly column at CNN.com. Check it out. Back after this. 
are back with Julian Zelzer, political historian at Princeton University, a New America Foundation fellow who's published over 500 op-eds, including his weekly column on CNN.com. You can also see him on CNN television. Follow him on Twitter at Julian Zelizer. Uh, Julian, thank you for holding. Welcome back. We were talking about whether or not Democrats should cooperate with Trump. Um, there are pros and cons to everything, as you know, in life, Julian, and you write about this. You write about the danger of compromise. Um, what is the danger uh, of compromise and even too much talk about compromise uh, with Democrats, you know, compromising with Trump or looking to possibly compromise with Donald Trump? Look, it's moral, it's about policy, and it's about politics. Morally, there are many Democrats who will still feel that given the kinds of things that Donald Trump stood for in the campaign on issues of immigration, on issues of race, uh, on issues of uh, Islamophobia, that you can't work with uh, a president, a White House, that supports those views, especially if he surrounds himself with many uh, cabinet officials and advisors like Mike Flynn, who continue uh, to endorse these kinds of stands. The second is that you end up allowing for policies rather than stopping policies uh, that go against what the Democrats stand for and that actually hurt working and middle-class Americans or lead to foreign policies that, that are more dangerous uh, than some people even imagine. And uh, finally, there's a political concern that if you concede too much early on, what you end up doing is creating better opportunities for Republicans in Congress to expand their margins in 2018 and for him to be reelected in, in uh, four years. And so those are all very serious concerns beyond the mega argument that some Democrats feel this is a president who is not fit uh, to hold office, and so there's a danger in supporting that. When we look at the composition of the House and the Senate, clearly there's a Republican uh, majority. Um, how much damage in, in in the next years can can the Democrats do if they don't compromise at all? I mean, congressional approval ratings among you know voters is extreme, and even non-voters extremely low. Um, and this is you know why they wanted to allegedly drain the swamp by electing Donald Trump, even though they didn't drain the swamp really in the House and the Senate um, on either side of the aisle of incumbent um, congressional members. But, you know, how so, you know, how much damage can Democrats do when they're not in the majority in the House and the Senate? In other words, how worried would you be if you were on the Trump team? Uh, not that worried. I mean, that's that's the situation right now in that they don't actually need the Democrats to cooperate either. Uh, there's a very disciplined House majority, and that's how the Republicans are. Even with all the splits we talk about, House Republicans tend to vote the party line pretty well. Uh, the Senate is obviously where Democrats can cause problems. The Republicans have a very narrow majority, and uh, in the Senate, the minority party, the Democrats have the filibuster so they can force 60 votes on many issues, not all issues, but many issues. They can cause problems for Supreme Court nominations, and uh, even on nominations, they're no longer allowed to filibuster. All they need to do is pick off one or two uh, Republican votes, and they can stop the administration. So they have that, and then they have just the power of hearings or the power of going to the press and talking about issues, and they'll get coverage for that. But it's limited. Uh, this is an administration that is in great shape right now, as are the Republicans in Congress, to really reverse a lot of the programs that have been put into place. When, again, 
we you know look at some of what Trump has said and and the rhetoric. It looks like, and when you look at right now some of these cabinet appointments or people he's talking to about being potential um, cabinet appointments, maybe except for like Mitt Romney, uh, this is a team that could help him to pursue that radical political agenda. It is fairly uh, radical. Um, We do have, uh, like I said, a majority of Republicans in both the House and the Senate. And uh, since uh, Trump might be pressured uh, to move forward uh, with this agenda, at least the most radical elements of his agenda. So talk to us um, uh, about that pressure and talk to us about, you know, I mean, you don't have a crystal ball, but what we might see when you look back politically and historically um, with what has happened here, uh, immigration crackdown, rolling back regulations on climate change, regressive tax cuts, deregulating the financial sector and harsh national security measures that uh, target Muslims and more. Ironically, that we're having this conversation today, the anniversary of Pearl Harbor, and we're hearing stories of people that were interned in our own country in Manzanar and the hell that they went through and the fact that they're hearing some of this rhetoric, even though it's directed toward a different uh, ethnic and minority and religious group, um, it, it's, it's, it's frightening. And, and being that you, you have the, the you know, plethora of wealth of history that you have, Julian, I, I'd love you to speak you know, to all of this. So first, let's talk about this radical political agenda. And, and two, let's talk about could history repeat itself in the United States with Muslims that we saw in the United States with the, the Japanese and, dare I say, even in uh, Germany with uh, the Jews? Well, we certainly can't. I, I think it's a mistake just to listen to what uh, President-elect Trump says or what he tweets because we've learned that he'll say all kinds of things So, uh, and he'll contradict himself. What's most relevant now is, is actual decisions and actual appointments to gauge where he is. So on some issues, you can see the direction in which it looks like he's going to move. He has just appointed John Kelly uh, to be the uh, head of Homeland Security. Kelly has been very tough and very strong on cracking down on immigration. That's one of his pivotal issues. He's also been an opponent of closing Guantanamo uh, and a critic of human rights criticisms about the way the war and terror, uh, counterterrorism has been conducted. So that's one example right there of where you can see a convergence between where congressional Republicans are and where the administration is. Congressman Price is now going to be in charge of health and human services. He is a leading opponent of uh, Obamacare. He has been since the program started. And he's also someone who is a proponent of changing other uh, social safety net programs like Medicare. So you can imagine there's going to be a push on both fronts. Uh, to try to achieve uh, dismantling one program or gutting it with, uh, you know, less money. Uh, And with Medicare, you can see a move to privatize the program. And finally, he just appointed Scott Pruitt to head the EPA. Uh, Pruitt is the Attorney General of Oklahoma, and he's one of the leading opponents of environmental regulations. He's actually tried to sue to stop the EPA from doing things. So it's hard to imagine he really enforces the policies he's responsible for. Those are three examples where there's a lot of real evidence, not rhetorical stuff, uh, that this administration is going to move in conjunction with congressional Republicans. And obviously, the human rights issues you talk about and uh, the authority of the state to crack down on social groups, which we remember in the anniversary of World War II, I think is something that we should take very seriously, given how it was part of the campaign. I, I want to um, talk about um, history, and uh, you know your history and you know your uh, politics. Again, Julian, you, you don't have a crystal ball. People say that we learn from our mistakes. 
and that we'd learn from history. But we also hear the cliche that history repeats itself. Um, Are we in a very different time? I mean, the majority of people did vote for Hillary Clinton. Not everybody who voted for Donald Trump wants a wall built, wants families torn apart and, you know, thousands of people deported, wants a ban on Muslims. The list goes on. But, you know, some of the rhetoric uh, that came from Donald Trump, uh, you know, frightens the, you know, living bejesus, as they say, out of me. And I know that many other Americans feel that way. Yet there are some that liked that rhetoric and there are some that voted for him. Um, you know, based on that, um, how much power does Donald Trump have uh, with the current composite? And I'm not saying Republican, just looking at who those Republicans are in the House and the Senate and some of these names that he has. How much power does he have with this task force, if you will, um, of making some of these extremely uh, radical ideas happen in modern day America? I think, look, the, the period, we are not in the 1930s and uh, the country is much more liberal and much more progressive on all sorts of social and cultural issues. And that's part of why so much of the country still did reject what his campaign was about. And many Republicans who voted for him voted out of partisan loyalty, not necessarily of a love for everything that he said. Uh, But that means we uh, can be optimistic the country wouldn't allow that to happen very easily. And the memory of those earlier periods, such as the internment of Japanese Americans, is on people's mind. But there's still a lot of power in in united government. Congressional Republicans tend to be to the right, uh, far to the right, of, of much of the electorate, including on some of these issues. Uh, Donald Trump, with united government, can do a lot. Presidents are not powerful uh, all the time on their own, but when they have a Congress to support them, they can move at a fast and furious rate. And some of the issues you're talking about would fall under national security, and that is one area where since 9-11 the the president has become much more powerful, the executive branch is much more powerful and able to do things without public consent or knowledge. So I think we shouldn't downplay, even though the country has changed, the possibility of some of these kinds of programs being put into place. Look what happened after 9-11. We've seen some of this already. So it's not talking about 80 years ago. It's just talking about a decade ago where we reverted to some of these problems. When we talk about people, you know, we talk about recounts right now with regard, you know, to the votes. We look at how many uh, votes, uh, you know, almost three million more than Donald Trump that Hillary Clinton got in the, um, you know, in the in the popular vote, uh, in the election, in the popular vote. And then we, you know, look at people are saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not going to cast my vote in the Electoral College uh, for, for Donald Trump. Um, is, is any of this likely to prevent a Donald Trump presidency, in your professional opinion, Julian? I don't think so. I mean, some might join the uh, faithless electors movement that has formed. I don't think it will be enough to sway the election. I think there will be many electors who are not comfortable doing that. Uh, after all, it, it appears that, uh, you know, he won. Uh, from everything we know, he won fair and square. You might not like the Electoral College, but that is how we elect candidates. You don't want to open up uh, a process where next election – other electors uh, feel the same way, that if we did it once, why can't we, uh, you know, move in mass away from the winner uh, once again? And I think it would cause a lot of social uh, concern, tension, and anger if, if somehow this election is overturned. So 
you know, they, they've done or they're doing some of the recount. It doesn't appear that it's going to reverse the election, and I'm not sure this will get the kind of support some of the um, some of the faithless electors are hoping for. Uh, and, uh, no question about that. You know, on television uh, earlier today, I was asked about Donald Trump, his temperament, and his use of Twitter. And one of the things that he said was that, you know, Twitter's immediate. It's a way I can communicate with the people. You know, it's uncensored. Um, yeah, it's uncensored, but it's also not edited. Um, I, I, should Donald Trump be using, you know, Twitter? Should a president be tweeting with the American people and have people engaging and, you know, be that connected? I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't there be some, like, he's there and we're here, uh, one, and two – is this going to be dangerous because he is a, you know, shoot-from-the-hip, knee-jerk reaction kind of guy, and that's gotten him in trouble in the past? Yeah, I think Twitter used carefully could be something positive. It could be a way in an era many Americans feel disconnected from politics for leaders to communicate with voters in a more informal mash- fashion and uh, in a more immediate way. And, and we've seen this before. That's what FDR did with radio, and that's what Kennedy did with television and Reagan as well. They found ways to use the technology to communicate in, in a manner that people found effective and comforting. The problem is the way he's using it. It's very dangerous on foreign policy just to say stuff uh, because every statement can have huge implications in terms of diplomatic relations and even war. Uh, and obviously, if, if there unfortunately, and there probably will be some act of terrorism in the next four years, a president targeting the wrong group can lead to horrendous consequences or uh, scaring the public and whipping them up through Twitter, through tweets, into a frenzy rather than rationally thinking what the best response is could be dangerous. So a uh, Twitter can be fine, but the way in which he has used it so far, and also to spread misinformation about voter fraud, that can be dangerous, especially when it's coming from the president of the United States. What about foreign leaders, foreign policy, terrorism? Um, These are areas where his tweets could technically place Americans here or abroad in harm's way or further harm's way. Absolutely. We've now heard some of this and seen some of this with China. He not only had the uh, conversation on the phone with the leader of Taiwan, but he also then sent out provocative tweets. And so far it hasn't done anything. Uh, But China is watching, and you certainly don't want to provoke some kind of economic war without really having thought through how this is going to unfold, and you don't want to provoke any kind of military conflict. Uh, And that's one example where some of the dangers of his tweeting and the way in which he does this without really thinking it all through or in very provocative fashion can have very real consequences. So someone's going to have to be by him as he's doing this. Uh, and someone's going to have to put some kind of filter. It could be an extraordinarily dangerous device. Okay. And, uh, guys, how much time do we have? We're done. Okay. No more time, Julian. Julian, I uh, love having you on. Thank you for joining us. Julian Zelizer is our guest, author of The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. The website is julianzelizer.com, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R.com. Follow him on, C- uh, on Twitter, at Julian Zelizer, same name, same spelling, and go to CNN.com. Check out all the great pieces he's written for them and shared with us here on the program.